This is Yudaha Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. A lot's come out in the last week. Israeli journalist Barak Ravid has exposed the behind-the-scenes story of former U.S. President Donald Trump's relationship with the State of Israel, and more specifically, with our former Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. And the best part about this, from our perspective, is that everything that's come out in recent days has pretty much validated the analysis put out by Vision Magazine over the last five years. So I thought it would be appropriate to bring onto the show Ari Osher, one of the leaders of Doreno, which is a branch of the Vision Movement in New York, and a frequent contributor to Vision Magazine. Uh, I thought I'd bring Ari onto the show to discuss a lot of what's come out in recent days, how it's being perceived uh, by the Jewish community in the United States, how it's being presented in the news cycle, and how this can actually help us to better understand the nature of our relationship with the United States and manage that relationship moving forward. Ari, welcome to the show. Hey, Yehuda, good to be here. All right, so you've seen the news, uh, you've seen, uh, you've, you mentioned to me before the show that you've been following Barack Ravid for a while anyway, you know, aside from this issue. Mm-hmm. How is this story being presented in the news cycle where you are and how is the pro-Israel community reacting? So it's interesting. Uh, as you said, I've, I've been following Barack Ravid uh, for a while and for those that don't, that aren't familiar with him. So he's a pretty prolific, uh, prominent reporter in Israel. He writes for Walla News in Israel, and also he's the Axios Middle East correspondent in the United States. And he's been pretty good at having these uh, exclusive scoops over the past few years, especially as it pertained to the Trump administration. He was always on the forefront, you know, breaking the news with Abraham Accords and all the different Middle East moves that were happening under Trump. And I mean, it, it hasn't, there hasn't been much under Biden thus far, but he, he has those as well. <clears throat> Generally speaking, you know, he, he represents more of the Western mindset of Israeli politics, of Israeli society. And you very much see that in his writing, in his reporting, particularly on this matter. What's interesting is he... You know, generally speaking, that that camp, I feel like, isn't the most pro-Trump in the in the sense of how people on the right may be pro-Trump uh, in, in the U.S. But he comes in and portrays it as a real historic achievement, which, in, in fairness to Trump, I, I think that there is some validity to that in the sense that there was an agreement that was signed. You know, that hasn't happened in over 20 years. You're talking about um, the Abraham Accords. Correct, correct. Uh, particularly um, the, the initial aspect of it, which was the agreement, the normalization of ties with the UAE. And it's been, you know, especially in his, so his, his most re- recent reporting, he came out with a new book, um, Shalom Shal Trump, with, uh, you know, the piece of Trump. Um, and in it, he talks about a, cu- a couple different aspects of it, but really the behind the scenes of what brought forth the Trump peace plan quote unquote. And one of the, the big newsmaker, the thing that I, you know, kudos to him for putting that out when he uh, announced his book, because it really gave prominence to his name and his new book, was what Trump said about Bibi afterwards, which was F-U-B-B. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
you know, it's funny because especially in the United States, people who are pro-Trump are like super pro-BB. Like, like they're like, the, you know, together, glued together. No, well, this might force some people to choose. Uh, it's not just that the pro-BB, I think that a lot of people in the United States, whether Jewish or otherwise, who support the state of Israel, tend to have also been co-opted into um, Republican politics, into a conservative American worldview that led them into the pro-Trump camp. And I think now that they're in the pro-Trump camp and that camp is so powerful and there's so much ideology built around that camp, uh, especially you know with the rise of what we can call, for lack of a better term, American fascism in the United States, uh, I, I think what Barack Ravid has done has exposed the contradictions between the pro-Trump and pro-Israel positions and shown us that Donald Trump is in many ways no different from any other U.S. president when it comes to the state of Israel, had more or less the same agenda and was trying to coerce, was trying to force a deal on Israel that would have forced us to relinquish a sizable portion of our country. 100%. You know, something that stood out to me in his reporting, and this was touched on, it was widespread when it was actually happening live, was at the time, shortly prior to the normalization of ties between Israel and the UAE, was Netanyahu floating the possibility of annexing um, Judea and Samaria, uh, the West Bank, so to say. And, you know, there was reasons why he picked the exact why he wanted to do it then there was the election coming up wants to play into his base whatever those reasons are but something that stood out to me so much at the time was just this insistence and Barack Reed, you know really expounds on it in his reporting his new reporting of really almost threats from the Trump administration the higher up people the Kushners the Berkowitzes do not do not annex Trump fuming over the concept of annexation and basically saying, you cannot do this unless we give you the green light, mm -hmm. which, you know, that that's that's very much counter to the to the concept of sovereignty of a nation to be wholly subservient that you won't make a move that whether it's in the best interest of Israel or not, you won't make that move unless you get approval from your master, so to say. Right. Well, I would argue that um, we've been learning a lot about Benjamin Netanyahu in the last few months. I think that I've never voted for Netanyahu. I've never voted for Bibi. And I have many criticisms of him, especially uh, when it comes to his giving Christian evangelical missionaries too much legitimacy and too much room to operate within our country. Um, his attitude towards Palestinians. Although I would say the latter is probably more the result of the two-state paradigm he's been forced to work with him. Uh, I wouldn't say Bibi's any more anti-Palestinian than any other Jewish leader of an Israeli political party today. Uh, but still, I've never voted for him. I've never identified with him uh, to the extent that I wanted to support him on election day. Uh, however, one thing that's become clear to me in recent months, and I think what Ravid revealed, uh, really only confirms what I think became obvious during Netanyahu's speech when our current government was sworn in, and that's that Bibi had spent the last 12 years protecting Israel from Washington, both from Barack Obama and from Donald Trump. And I think, you know, the pro-Israel sectors in the United States, obviously, you know, pro-Israel Jews, but also other pockets of American society that are supportive of Israel, 
and many Israeli nationalists here actually have taken the position that Trump had given the green light for Netanyahu to do whatever he wanted. Netanyahu decided not to annex and that this was a wasted opportunity. Uh, we heard, I, I think it was even Naftali Bennett who, who spoke in this language, that this was a wasted opportunity, that uh, Netanyahu did not act, that for some reason Netanyahu doesn't want to annex parts of the West Bank of Samaria and Judea to the state of Israel. Uh, whereas I think the opposite is true. And I think the opposite should have been obvious to everyone that you know Netanyahu has always done a great job at keeping his cards close. You know, he, he behaves in such a way where people have room to interpret his statements and actions as either ideologically driven or as the words and deeds of a self-centered politician. Correct. And I think that he actually is much more of an ideologue than people give him credit for. I think he has a very deep understanding of Jewish history. I think he has a very... Um, clearly formulated vision for what he wants the state of Israel to be. Uh, whether or not that vision matches up with ours is a different question, but I think it does include the entire land of Israel. And I think that's something that Netanyahu has always been strong on. He's, he's strong on personally, meaning during his first term in office, he was weak um, in not being able to outmaneuver U.S. President Bill Clinton, meaning Clinton was able to outmaneuver Netanyahu, was able to force him to give up 80% of Hebron. Um, he thought he would be receiving Jonathan Pollard. He did not receive Jonathan Pollard at the time. But I think that Bibi's second term in office, the 12-year term, uh, was a period in which he really demonstrated a lot of skill at not resisting the Americans frontally in the way that somebody like former Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir had done, uh, but rather outmaneuvering them, slipping through their fingers, telling them one thing but doing another, uh, all the while trying to safeguard what he perceived to be the national interests of the Jewish people. And I think that Netanyahu 100% wanted to annex as much territory as he could to the state of Israel. And what the, the only thing that made sense to me was that the administration in Washington wouldn't allow it and, and certainly wouldn't allow it without him also giving up the lands that the Trump administration's deal of the century demanded he give up. So I think that Trump's statements reveal that this analysis had been correct all along, that Netanyahu was the one who wanted to annex and the only reason he didn't was because the Trump administration wouldn't let him. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, it should, from, from the reporting, as, as we've seen, it shows BB, like you said, trying to constantly outmaneuver uh, Trump, try to be a step ahead in private, in their Oval Office meetings, saying one thing, but then when they do the speech in the Rose Garden, saying something completely different, but to fit his agenda. And I, I agree. I, I think um, BB does have a, a pretty foundational grounding in Israel's history, coming from his family and his background, mm -hmm. I think definitely that's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, so from my perspective, Trump's statements really clarify a few things for us. In addition to the fact that it was Trump who stopped Netanyahu from legally annexing parts of the West Bank to Israel, uh, I think it's now very clear that Netanyahu did not actually want to surrender any territory, meaning that he has a deep ideological opposition to giving up land, even within the context of Trump's deal of the century. 
Trump also came out and said that it was Netanyahu much more than Palestinian Authority leader Mahmoud Abbas who prevented the division of our land into two states. Meaning okay. that, you know, Trump said that when he came into office, he really perceived the Israelis as wanting peace. And again, when we talk about peace from the American diplomatic context, we're talking about dividing our land into two separate states, each dependent on the U.S. for survival. Right. So Trump came into office believing that Israel was eager for such a peace and that it was the Palestinian leadership, Fatah, Mahmoud Abbas, that was preventing this peace from happening. Uh, and in office, Trump says he had learned that it was actually Netanyahu, much more than Abbas, uh, who was opposed to this framework, uh, was opposed to the division of the land, and from the American perspective, was therefore opposed to peace. And what that says to me is that Netanyahu actually has a deep ideological commitment to Eretz Israel, to the land of Israel, and an unwillingness to compromise on her. Um, this is, by the way, um, interestingly, I think we, we can contrast Netanyahu's actions with that of our current Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett. Um, you know, it was a few weeks ago, it was reported in the, on the radio here that in a security cabinet meeting after he had gone to Washington and sat with Biden, he expressed shock to his ministers that the U.S. is firmly opposed to Jewish building in Judea and Samaria firmly opposed to any more Jewish building in the West Bank. And this was a shock to Bennett, meaning the fact that Bennett is shocked that a U.S. administration is opposed to Jewish life in the West Bank already says to me that this guy is completely unqualified for his job. Like this guy should not be prime minister of Israel if he doesn't know going into his job that the Americans are the number one obstacle to Jewish life in Judea and Samaria. Uh, that it's consistent U.S. foreign policy since the Six-Day War to force Israel to relinquish the lands that we won in that war. And that any Jewish building in those lands is perceived by the U.S. as an obstacle to its agenda. You know, it's somewhat of a tangent on this. We spoke uh, prior to the, the U.S. election in 2020, a few months before, and we were talking about um, you know, who would be quote unquote better for Israel, uh, Trump or Biden. And you brought to my attention something, a really interesting concept. And I'm, I'm curious how it plays out under a Bennett prime ministership right now was this idea of Bush, so Bush too. So obviously the devastating withdrawal from Gaza under Ariel Sharon. And then fast forward to Obama's years, a very contentious, relationship, BB and Obama, really open um, in that respect, their beef for each other. And you were telling me about Condoleezza Rice's book and how she wrote that the Obama administration really hurt the, U the U.S.'s goal at creating, as, as you were saying, peace in, in, the, in the U.S.'s mind, which is two states. And what that, what that actually looks like for American listeners listening, the perception is that a right-leaning Republican conservative government who is openly friendly and praising of Israel is actually in reality worse for Israel because the Israeli government is willing to make more concessions to a friendly government versus a democratic government, which 
may have more hostility towards Israel, certain factions within within the left. Uh, like I said, it was more prominent in Obama's years, that hostility. But because of that hostility, Israel is less willing, the Israeli government is less willing to make concessions. And I'm curious how that that construct plays out, given in the past it had been somewhat under uh, Netanyahu, who I was talking initially about under Ariel Sharon, but you know, for 12 years it was, it was Netanyahu, and now we have a brand new prime minister who, like you said, isn't so tuned to the realities on the ground and how, how that dichotomy plays out now. Well, I think that the more hostile the Biden administration positions itself, meaning the, the more open hostility the Biden administration expresses towards Israel, the more our guard will be up, uh, including political leaders, no matter how ignorant or unqualified our political leaders are for their positions, you know, they will also have their guard up. Uh, just instinctively, I hope, if the U.S. administration is expressing open hostility. Now, I think that at the moment, we should, you know, we, we should appreciate the fact that the Biden administration really has its hands full. It doesn't want us to build in Judea and Samaria, that's true, uh, but it's also not focusing too much on this part of the world. Uh, I think it's much more focused on China. Um, you know, during Biden's meeting right. with Bennett, I think the emphasis was more on trying to disconnect Israel from China diplomatically, uh, because I think the U.S. is gearing up towards a major confrontation with Beijing. So we should appreciate the fact that the U.S. is for the most part distracted and not overly concerned with us at the moment. And I'm hoping that by the time, you know, if and when the U.S., you know, we, we can have a longer conversation over the future of the United States, the decline of American empire, etc. But let's say if and when Washington begins to refocus on us, on this conflict, on trying to impose a two-state solution on us and the Palestinians, uh, I would hope that by then we have a much more qualified and responsible government leading us. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm actually working now, uh, you could call it a working paper of sorts, that I, I would want to submit to uh, Bennett or whoever would be in power by the time I finish it. But kind of looking at what the threat of a conflict between the U.S. and China and the U.S. and Russia looks like and what those implications may be for Israel mm -hmm. and how both militarily as well as politically because they really do go hand in hand because I think what we're really seeing on the global stage starting with Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan coming now to Biden openly saying that the U.S. is not going to send troops to support Ukraine in the event of a Russian invasion which likely means that troops would not be sent to Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion, is really the acceptance, acknowledgement by Biden that he's somewhat overseeing the United States relegation out of being the superpower of the world and what that really looks like. I wouldn't necessarily assume that because the U.S. won't send troops to the Ukraine against Russia, it also won't send troops to Taiwan against China. Uh, I think that there's there's room to argue that Biden is focusing exclusively on China and might very well uh, use Taiwan as a pretext to escalate tensions with China. And I, I think it's true 
that unlike you know the post-World War II period, when no matter who was president of the United States, they would for the most part be perceived as doing a good job because the United States was growing, its economy was growing, it was growing in power and influence over the world. Uh, now it's the opposite. No matter who is president over the United States, they'll be perceived as doing a bad job because, you know, zooming out, the empire is in decline. America is growing increasingly weaker on the world stage. Its economy is in shambles. So I'm not optimistic that Biden or any other U.S. leader is just willing to allow their empire to go quietly into the night. I think they're going to lash out. I think that China is the obvious target today because China is the most potent threat on the world stage to American dominance. For the last 30 or so years, we've been living in a unipolar U.S. hegemonic world where the empire was the only major player on the world stage. And now that's being challenged. It's being, and, and it's being challenged primarily from Beijing. So I think, I think just in terms of self-preservation, of the U.S. is likely to escalate tensions with China. So, so I do write in this uh, in this paper that if Biden were to just let Taiwan and Ukraine fall, it would be the first time in history that a hegemonic state just handed over the reins without a fight. So I do agree in the sense that I think that it would cause some sort of conflict. But what I fear may happen is that, and I and I, I don't I don't fear it in the sense of a lost Israel, just in the sense of an, an event that would occur is it may motivate Iran or it may motivate one of the hostile Arab states that Israel has a normalized relationship, even if it has a normalized relationship with um, attempting to, you know, try something funny uh, because the perception, at least in the West, which I'm, I fully disagree with, but it's, it is the mainstream perception is that Israel is fully dependent on U.S. military strength, mm-hmm. irrespective of the absolute facts that America has never sent troops. It, it has sold weapons, but Israel also has a very large weapons um, industry itself. So that's not necessarily like a, an issue. But historically, America has hindered Israel. If you look at nearly every single war that has been a success, America has come in and said, hold up, pull back, pull back your troops. You know, in Lebanon, where we were all the way up in Beirut. And America pretty much said, pull back, come all the way back down. And that created the vacuum that is Lebanon today, which ultimated in Hezbollah being an active threat to the northern part of Israel. So I think that either one of these conflicts, whether it be Russia, whether it be China, everything in foreign relations is kind of this domino effect. And I think either which one could be the domino that could lead to a much larger global conflict that we find ourselves in. And I, I really think it's important for the Israeli government to be proactive, both militarily and politically in that respect. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you gave only one of several examples, really, because we can we can look at almost every point of U.S. foreign policy towards the state of Israel um, since 1948 and see how the U.S. was always interested in controlling Israel in limiting our strength, in keeping us dependent, in making us dependent, uh, but not allowing us to be big, strong, independent, self-sufficient, and uh, develop our own, even culturally. I think that the United States feels threatened 
by Israel going deeper into our own identity. I think the sectors of Israeli society that are more connected to Jewish identity and Jewish history and the things that have been driving our people for thousands of years appears threatening to people in the U.S. establishment. What they want, I, I think what the U.S. is interested in is a small and dependent state of Israel that would function as an outpost of Western civilization in the Middle East. And as you pointed out earlier on the show, there is absolutely a sector of Israeli society um, with a lot of power that has essentially wanted the same thing, has envisioned the state of Israel as an outpost of Western civilization in an otherwise quote-unquote savage region. In fact, our former Prime Minister Ehud Barak um, described the state of Israel as a villa in the jungle, right? As an island of civility in an otherwise barbaric part of the world. And that's not a mindset that's really helpful to anybody at this point. Uh, you know, another thing uh, I want to point out that became clear from these recordings and, and from Ravid's book is that Trump saw Defense Minister Benny Gantz as somebody he could work with. He saw Benny Gantz as somebody who is interested in advancing um, U.S. interests in the region, implementing a two-state solution, uh, somebody the Americans could work with. And, you know, we've been saying for years, th this is not something that's come out. Um, the claim that we had been making that I still hold to, to be true is that Avigdor Lieberman, had our current finance minister had made himself or had offered himself to the Trump administration as their man in Israeli politics and that he prevented the establishment of a nationalist government here uh, in order to force Netanyahu to share power with Gantz. I think that it was the Trump administration that had wanted Gantz as a partner to Netanyahu and worked through Lieberman to prevent the establishment of a government that would not include guns. And this is one of the major reasons for the political turmoil in Israel over the last couple of years, you know, the four election cycles that we had uh, and the inability of Netanyahu to form a government because it was important to the Trump administration that Benny Gantz be included. Yeah, I did find that interesting reading that too. Um, but it, it doesn't surprise me because I think Benny Gantz does very much represent that sector of Israeli society that is very much embedded and has bought into, you know, the concept of Western civilization. But I, and I and I think I, I you know I, I really do agree with what you were saying about threat. Uh, that I, th I think it's more of a subconscious threat that the Western elites have about what what really makes up Hebrew identity and civilization, which runs completely counter to the foundations of modern Western thought, which is the, and we could go deeper on this at another time, but of John Locke and this idea that human beings have no such tribal or religious identities or connections and that people are just essentially these autonomous beings that only care about what is in their immediate financial and material gain. And there may be some people that are like that, but I think for, I think the overwhelming majority of people in the world really run counter to that. And I and I think that we see that very, very clearly in the failure of American imperialism today, which people don't really like talking about the idea of Western thought being imperialism, but it's imperialism. It may not be classical imperialism where armies are sending in, you know, large companies that are slaughtering civilians, 
which I mean, in, in some situations, the U.S. has done that, but it's more of an ideological imperialism where trying to strip people of their identity, of their cultural background, and bring them into this Lockean construct of the world where you have no connections to anyone. You are just a citizen of the world. And I don't think people buy into that. And especially as, as the Israeli population grows more in the observant sectors, which are generally more connected to the, the traditional values of Hebrew culture and civilization, I think we're going to see a, a much larger pushback against the encroachment of Western ideals in Israel, which I, th I think is a good thing. Right. I think what you're pointing out is basically liberalism as an ideological paradigm, meaning that liberalism is the ideology that gives moral legitimacy to an unjust system. And I think today we should see liberalism. And again, when I say liberalism, I'm including liberal and conservative positions within that. I think both the Democratic and Republican parties in the United States buy into the ideology of liberalism. And liberalism is essentially the ideology of the Fourth Empire, the empire of Esav, that has basically dominated the world in one form or another since the time of the Roman Empire. Yeah, that's exactly how it's playing out. Right. I think Trump is a perfect caricature for that empire. You know, Trump is essentially a narcissistic sixth grade bully who became president. Uh, he's the ugly American. I think it's funny that Trump is perceived by so many people in the United States in much the same way as the rest of the world perceives the average American. Right. Trump was just like the perfect American caricature on the world stage to represent this, you know, ugly empire in decline. Yeah, that, that's something that, you know, growing up in more of the, the Western construct is you're, you're embedded with the idea of, you know, uh, you know, America is the center of the universe, America, like English, you only speak English if you speak another language, I mean, that's ridiculous. You know, and I, something that shocked me when I first started traveling by, by myself, particularly in parts of Southeast Asia, was what you're saying, this caricature of the ugly American, which many people immediately have, even before they've even met you, they just assume that you embody the loud American tourist who's just wants to do whatever they want to do, doesn't care about what your culture is, what your identity is. They just want to impose themselves and their beliefs on them. And it's something that I initially struggled with on my travels, like overcoming that that boundary. But I, I did ultimately realize, and oh, I guess people realized for me that I don't necessarily embody those ideals and values as much as the other American-born individual. Right. Um, so now let's see, you know, I, I think that, um, as I said, our current government is led by people who are completely unqualified to, to lead our state. Uh, I'm hoping to see more responsible leadership and I would I would hope that um, more responsible leaders will take steps to separate Israel from the empire before the empire is for the decline, to avoid being caught under the collapse. Mm. Yeah, and that, that, that's the biggest fear. I, and that, that's what I hope to accomplish with this paper, if we can get the right eyes, is Israel doesn't want to be in a situation, we don't want to be in a situation where, like you said, we fall underneath the collapse and we're caught in something that we have no we have no business being a part of to begin with. Right, right. Okay, um, Ari Osher, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a great conversation. Pleasure. And I hope uh, I, I hope listeners 
uh, find it informative and, and interesting. And I know we're presenting a new paradigm through which to look at U.S.-Israel relations, um, but I think it's a paradigm that is uh, constantly strengthening, gaining validation, uh, and it's just becoming obvious to so many people, um, even people for whom it was like anathema only a few years ago. Thank God. Thank God that it's it's, it's going that way because, you know, the, the work that's being done, the conversations that are being had, they're, they're grounded in in our past and, and in our future. Right. And, and in our future, we keep it going. Right. And I think that's what we're really doing here at Vision is we're blending a deep understanding of Jewish identity, Jewish history, uh, Jewish aspirations with a very sophisticated political analysis. And I, and I think the combination of those two forces really creates a, a paradigm that's able to answer and address many of the needs of our generation. 100%. I'd also like to take this opportunity to remind listeners that if you like what we do here at the Vision Movement and at Vision Magazine, you could support our work by going to visionmovement.org or visionmag.org and hitting the donate button on the menu bar up top. It's important to remember that we are 100% listener funded and we don't want that to ever change. So your support is incredibly important and appreciated. And if you're currently unable to contribute to our work financially, uh, doing something as simple as sharing episodes of this podcast with some friends or leaving a positive review on iTunes or, or any of the platforms where you listen can be incredibly helpful in helping to expand our reach. So Ari, I'd like to thank you again for joining me. I wish you continued success with everything you're doing to build the Reno in the New York area. Thank you, Huda. And if listeners are interested in checking out the show notes for this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 66. Six.